Welcome to the Not For The Average podcast. This is your host, Trent Leishan. Leadership. We talk about it. We seek it. We demand it. But what is leadership really? A leader is someone who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. John C. Maxwell. And true leadership isn't something you can necessarily teach easily, but it can be learned through role models who have walked the talk. Sam Mitchell is one of Australia's most decorated AFL players. In fact, it's hard to find a more well-credentialed role model when it comes to football and reaching the ultimate success. Apart from being a husband and father of three, here it is some of Sam's achievements. Early in his career, Sam won the JJ Liston Trophy, awarded to the best and fairest player in the VFL. He was a VFL Premiership player. He won the AFL Rising Star. He's a five times Peter Crimmins medal winner, which is Hawthorne's best and fairest player. A three times All-Australian player, a Brownlow medalist, AFL Premiership captain, and four times AFL Premiership player. He's the current Box Hill Hawks head coach, assistant coach at the Hawthorne Football Club, and in 2022, He'll take over the reins for Master Coach Alistair Clarkson as head coach of the mighty Hawthorne Football Club. Sam has had an extraordinary career, one littered with ups, downs, successes and many five-star leadership learnings. These we can apply to all areas of life and I'm pumped to be sharing them with you. Let's go. Sam, thanks for joining us on the Not For The Average podcast. Yes, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. Now, I must say, uh, for the listeners, I'm a, this is a passion podcast because I am a, I'm a very passionate Hawks man. Um, and Sam has been in part responsible for giving me and my two boys great pleasure over the years. So I'm very thankful for that. Uh, and I'm also very thankful, Sam, for you making the time in your busy schedule because you've got quite a bit going on at the moment, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, there's been a bit, bit happening my last few weeks. And I think a bit more will be happening over my next few years. Now, I've just read your bio highlights of the intro, and I must say, it reads like the CV of a five-star general. Uh, <laughs> there, hasn't, there hasn't been much that you haven't accomplished in football, but I know it hasn't always been smooth sailing and success, has it? No, I don't, I don't think it ever is. People always remember the accolades and the, and the ups, but for every up, there's usually a couple of downs that go with it, and that's if you're going well, so... Um, I mean, you don't want it all to be smooth sailing or you wouldn't recognise a rough sea. I want to take it back, Sam, uh, to give our listeners a really good snapshot of where you've come from. Where did your passion for sport start? It's a great question. I'm not, I couldn't give you a single moment. Um, my father would, I didn't grow up in an athletic background or have any sport in my family or anything like that. I was far from a child prodigy. Um, I, I remember my, my dad would tell the story that I came home one day and said, I want to go to footy clinic, which the technical term would have been Vic kick or now Oz kick. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, Oh, okay. Um, and so off we went on a Saturday morning, walked up the hill to my primary school and started playing footy clinic and went from there. Good. And you played soccer as well as a junior. Yeah. I had some friends sort of in primary school that played a lot of soccer. So I played some soccer for a, a year or two um, in sort of later primary school, uh, which was which was great fun. I've always I always enjoyed kicking around the round ball. You see the passionate play with the, at the Oz kick. You see, yeah, that's the pure stuff, isn't it? Seeing the kids running around on a, a Friday or a Saturday. It's a really funny footy, footy in particular, but sport is a funny thing because you start doing it for just genuine love and then mm. eventually um, at the professional level it becomes a job and my my job this year has been you know split between Hawthorne and Box Hill and the difference in the attitude towards sport between the playing groups and it makes sense one of them does it all day every day and the other one get there at five o'clock and it's their release for the afternoon so um, but the difference in um, you know despite playing the same game the attitude towards it is is vastly different and there's still obviously a bit of hope with the Box Hill boys no doubt and making a first grade debut I would have thought for for some of them. Some of them, yeah. So some of the, I mean, I think what's what's brilliant about sport is it gets you a, a measurable way to prove yourself. As a sports person, you get to um, be measured and rewarded. And as a team, there's a ladder. There's nothing more objective than that. And as an individual, there's 
um, getting a game in the seniors or the reserves or the under-19s or winning a best and fairest or coming seventh. You know, there's a very objective view of how you perform as an athlete. And I think some players um, really crave that. And obviously, there's that's without any sort of team element. That's just the individual side of the sport. To get to becoming a professional player, like when did you start to to have that belief that it was something that you obviously you wanted to do, but something that you could you could achieve? Well, I actually laugh at my own naivety as a child. When I was 10 to 12 years old, there was no thought in my mind that I wouldn't play AFL footy or I just wondered how many Brownlows I might win and grand finals we might win. And my, I think, I think back now at my lack of math of how many kids my age were thinking the same thing and my naivety is, is, was, must have been bliss. I remember sitting in a room at 14, 14 years old, trying out for a squad and a coach, and he was so adamant and he, he, he was trying to be beautiful and he said, you guys are so lucky sitting in this room and there was about 80 of us squashed into a room trying out for a team and he said, two, maybe even three of you will one day play AFL. And it was the first moment I had, I'd never forget where I sat. It was at Heathmont Reserve. I even remember where we were and everything about, you know, I looked around the room at at least 10 players that were significantly better than me at that stage. And it dawned on me that, oh, I might not. Um, So it was a to and fro from there. You strike me as a competitive character. I've seen you obviously, you know, over the journey playing football, the competitive spirit. Um, Did that come through as as a junior? Were you just known as being really competitive or did that come through confidence later in life? Oh, no, I don't, I don't love going back to these eras because I think <laughs> if, anyone, if anyone listens to this and they're like, yeah, I knew Sam Mitchell when he was 15. I can't it was he was hopeless. Too many, <laughs> I can't imagine there'd be too many positive um, things being said. I think they yeah. would say competitive yeah. though, um, probably competitive to a fault. Yeah. Um, no, but certainly that. I mean, it's a great beauty, isn't it, in, in sport of being able to, you know, you think about, if you think about the, the lawyer or the doctor who goes to the footy and they yell out over the fence like a lunatic and then they, mm. you know, go and uh, do all the sorts of, com, you know, conservative work during the week. Um, when you're actually the player and you get to be out there on the field, um, that, that ability to have a, a way to... Um, get out your competitiveness is right there for everyone to see. And I didn't always control it as well as I should. I, yeah. I yelled at an umpire so badly in under 14s, we didn't get a free kick the rest of the day. And I was <laughs> certain to this day that I've co- I cost us a finals campaign. Probably served you well later in life. It was probably just a bit early. You know, we're in a workplace every day. You guys are on show. Your emotions are high. You being, you get a physical, you're aggressive. So uh, everything's, everything's out there for everyone to see on a weekend. Uh, very interesting workspace, that's for sure. We moved forward a little bit. The golden years at Hawthorne, obviously, we feasted on the success there for a long time at the Hawthorne Football Club. Um, those golden years with that great team, the three-peat team and the four premierships littered with stars, was there, what made that team so great? Yeah, I mean, a lot of things. I think one thing, I mean, the first, first and foremost, we were good at footy. Can't make diamonds out of stones. So we were good at footy. Um, and I think the other the other couple of things that were important is we were very driven to improve no matter how good we were. In later years, I, I remember reading Good to Great and mm-hmm. so much of Great it was book. like, ah, oh, yeah, that's why we must have done that. Ah, oh, yeah, that's why we must have done that. So that ability to push yourself beyond what is just okay um, was really important. And the other, the other thing mm. that I think became really important was our openness and desire to give and receive feedback. So you can imagine the best players talking to the best players in a way that, you know, perhaps they didn't seem as respectful as it might have, or uh, there was no, oh, hang on a minute, I had 30 possessions, don't talk to me like that, or hang on a minute, I kicked five goals, don't talk to me like that. We never, we'd never had one aspect of that. And so whether it was Hodgie giving me um, solid feedback about how I could have played better or whether it was um, Jared Ruffhead talking to Hodgie about the same thing or mm. um, I was going to say Cyril, but I don't think he did too much of the, the feedback in those days. But there was enough. Oh, we love Cyril. Bring him back. 
Bring you back. There was, there was enough of us that were willing to try to improve and to um, commit to team ethos before ourselves. I've got a question here from a client question, actually, from Marcus Stevens. He's the GM at Downer Group, uh, VEC Tasmania. And he had a question for you around feedback. His question is, it seems that elite sports people and teams have a willingness to provide and accept feedback, where in business, there generally appears to be fear of providing feedback. So how, in your experience, is the best way to provide feedback to your teammates to inspire them to lift their own standards? And how do you think this could translate in a business context? Yeah, so I've thought about this quite a lot. Um, there's a couple of things that have to happen. You need a fertile ground. And what I mean what I mean by that is in your workplace, if you start with feedback, you're probably going to struggle. Um, so what you need to start with is um, whether you call it culture or environment, but if you need to have, I mean, the the coined the current the current term is is psychological safety, and what that means is I can say anything to you, and feel safe that you won't personally hold that against against me. Like I might think that someone isn't doing their job as well as they could, and if my if he trusts that my reason for telling him that is to help him, hmm. then he he should be in rational thought really thank you very much for that feedback. Okay. Um, the okay. issue we have in most workplaces is if you just want to shoot um, feedback and without follow-up, without care, without, I would call it love, that it, it becomes a, an unsafe environment where, you know, if you gave feedback to your boss or your subordinate, that you might then be treated different and that is unfair. So it's much safer to be to not give or receive any feedback where if you re- if you really want to achieve your best you should be looking for for feedback as often as you can feedback is the lifeblood of any high performer the faster you can get feedback the more often you can get it mm, the more mm, valuable mm. and the more reliable it is the quicker you can improve um, but you need psychological safety in the first instance um, and if you can't create that, then you're going to struggle to get meaningful feedback. And Ray McLean often says, he says, feedback, it's like when someone gives you a plate of food. You always say thank you, but you don't have to eat the lot. Oh, yes. So doesn't you know, I'll, after every meeting I take or talk about or anything that I do, I'll say to anyone that was listening, oh, what did, what did you think? So if I take a meeting with players, I'll go to one of the other coaches later. I'll say, what did you think? How did I present? And they might say, oh, I thought it was a bit this or I thought it was a bit that. And I'll say, oh, thanks, that's really good. And then I'll go away and I'll think about that feedback that he's given me and that will help me. Um, But I may or may not believe him and use that. And that's part of the skill set of being um, in a management position. And now our friends at Leading Teams, there's Ray's book there, Teamwork. Uh, We interviewed Jake Bridges, one one of the team members from Leading Teams as well. So they do very, very good work. Sam, let's talk leadership. Who's the most inspiring leader you've worked with or been alongside? Inspiring is an interesting word. I saw it on your. Uh, um, I knew you were going to pull me up on that. Actually, um, why did you? Why did a you better think? word? Impactful. Well, inspiring is a bit fluffy, isn't it? Because but some people will consider it. Was oh, there a better word? Need, some people need a lot of inspiring, and others, others, others perhaps don't. So, I, th- I think when someone can can sell a vision and can um, guide an organisation towards something that's when you know you've got a strong leader um so in my over my journey um obviously alistair clarkson is strong in that space um luke hodge was excellent um david parkin um adam simpson was a really strong leader in my career where he believed that i had a um, successful coaching career even when i was halfway through my playing career um, and being able to him to sell me the vision of where he think I could go in the future, et cetera, mm. et cetera. Um, things like when they're able to sell a future vision that you can see yourself, um, I think that's when that's part of strong leadership from my point of view. The best business leaders that we work with, they have almost a healthy sense of delusion when it comes to setting goals. Like what they see is very different sometimes to what others see uh, and very different sometimes to what their teams see. But as they keep moving, as they keep going, the, the team starts to get by and they start to see it as well. The, the leader, the fearless leader, is usually two or three years into the future yeah. when it's actually not realistic. 
Yeah, it's great. Um, usually it's, so there's a, I think Elon Musk has said, try to achieve, so plan for what it's going to take you 10 years to achieve and try to do it in six months. And you won't get there, but you'll be a hell of a lot further along as if you, than if you plan for 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the, the other one is, I think it's Bill Gates who said something along the lines of people underestimate what they can do in six months, but they over it. They overestimate what they can do in six months, but they underestimate what they can do in 10 years. So yeah, um, yeah. being able to get all of your people to see the, the longer term vision of what you see is a key, a key pillar in, in leadership. The master coach, Alistair Clarkson, has you know, the success that he's been able to help facilitate at Hawthorne. Um, would you say that, that he had that in his skill set? Yeah, yeah, oh, fantastic. I mean, I remember the one of the first talks he ever had. I was like I'd played footy in the dark career up to that point. And then, um, you know, he was able to help me turn the light on. And then his, his way of saying this is the where we're going, this is how we're going to get there. I don't know how long it's going to take, but this is the direction. Um, and we thought it might be four or five years at that stage. And it, it did take four years. So people think it was all fast, but it's a four-year. Mm. And then that was way earlier than it should have been. So, you know, re- really we were on a six- or seven-year journey um, at that point um, before we won the 2008 premiership. And then being able to resell the vision with um, tactics and and on-field and off-field sort of selling points is, is an important part of leadership. I think Clarko was not afraid to tell some stories and sometimes I remember one, he did an ice skating, showed an ice skating video that he thought was beautiful. And I think he thought it would be really engaging for the players. And I got a tap on the shoulder halfway through this, it was dark room sitting in in the theater at the club and this beautiful ice skating. And I get a tap on the shoulder and someone says, oh, standing ovation. And so at the end of this, what he thought was an inspiring video, everyone stand up and gave a sarcastic standing ovation and he just said, get out. <laughs> the idea that he was selling a vision was there. Well, the natural predator of that vision is belief, isn't it? Taking people on the journey. Do they believe? My very passionate, Sam, about my kids and their sport, you know, I love seeing them develop their confidence, you know, start to believe in themselves. And you can see over the journey and you go back, you see where they lack confidence and you can see it just slowly ticking away. It's a thing of beauty really, isn't it? And I think that's just the power of, obviously, power of compounding. But when you think about you know, great coaches and teachers that have helped you over the journey, how important they are. What I got out of what made that great Hawthorne team, the three-peat team, so great, um, obviously you said they could all play. Uh, but one of the real secret ingredients was the ability to, to give really strong feedback and a commitment to self-improvement. I still think no matter how strong you are as an individual or you are as your team, you must always be looking to move forward. If you, one of my pet hates when I was playing was when a player said, let's do what we did last week. I hated it. You must move forward. There's no doing what you did last week. Whatever you did last week won't be good enough this week. And that's really being able to be in the moment, isn't it? Yeah. You always want to limit your, I always call it time travel. Limit your time travel. You don't want to look too much into the into the past um, about what what happened and why. Um, for those who get stuck in the past, quite often that is um, the first that's the first bad habit that leads to, or the first habit I should say that leads to depression, um, mental health issues around that. And then, by the same token, you don't want to spend too much time in the future. Um, mm-hmm. Thinking about what might happen. Um, for those who have trouble controlling that, it usually leads to anxiety. And troubles with anxiety. So um, being able to have the ability to stay in the present is a really important um, skill set to have. And as a player, it's vital. We do a lot of work with our players around uh, mental skills and being able to come back to the moment. You can imagine the player who hasn't had a possession at quarter time and then the player who's had 12 touches and kicked two goals at quarter time. It's very unlikely uh, if you haven't got strong mental skills that you will get back into a game that you're struggling or you will be able to maintain a strong game um, because both of those things have pitfalls that require a strong mental resolution. I had a question I took out, Sam, which was what is momentum? Because you think about the mental toughness to come back, but you get on a roll and it seems very hard to stop when a team's on a roll. What is it? Is there a definition? Do uh, Do you have an answer? Because I, I think it's one of those things that's reasonably difficult. As a coach, 
I don't spend a lot of time watching individual plays or this happened or that happened. You know, I'm always find myself, I'm looking for patterns of what's happening in this game and um, I'm trying to get the momentum of the game in our, my team's favour and trying to figure out ways to give our players better odds than the opposition according to the way the game's being played. Uh, and momentum, unfortunately, seems to be one of those things that is very hard to put their finger on. But an example, it's not happening at the moment with the lack of crowds, but when you play interstate, you can kick four goals in a row and there is no momentum with you. The opposition kick one goal and it feels like all the momentum is with them just through mm. crowd noise. Mm. Um, so that mm. feeling that you mm. get, that lack, I think now that yeah. I'm talking, maybe I've worked it out, um, my own theory around it anyway, is that a positive momentum is the feeling that I can do this and things mm. will go well. So you behave and act, your behavior says something in a confident manner. Whereas, oh no, they're coming leads to more negative body language, more negativity, which which manifests itself across the field and leads to a self-fulfilling prophecy of the opposition coming harder at you. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that as well. I have thought about it because you do see it a lot in all sports. And, you know, when you see one team is trying to win, the other is trying not to lose. I think that mindset shift, you know, changes behaviour, changes confidence levels, changes energy levels. Um, but it is very hard to stop. We know that. Just coming back to coaching, Sam, so what attracted you to becoming a coach? Uh, I really enjoyed, um, in the early part of my career, I really loved improving myself uh, and figuring out what I could do and how I could help the team and what I could achieve. And then pro- it was reasonably early, around you know my early 20s, I started to enjoy working with other guys and seeing them improve and the reward that I got from seeing individuals improve and probably from there it grew into influencing more people around the football club and more people and um, you mentioned earlier about um, you see these the belief um, in kids when they're running around and really when you look at a player and you think I can see what you are capable of and one day in the Mm. future you're going to be this fantastic something um, and yeah, I can yeah. see that and you can't see it yet. And when you can put your ideas into their head or you can help mm. them believe what they can achieve. I'll never forget um, Luke Bruce in his first couple of training sessions. He was scared of shadows. and um, <laughs> right. But he had a couple of things in his game which were from the first day when he was a 60-kilo ex-rugby scaredy cat that wore a mouth guard for the time trial type of player but he had a couple of things that were brilliant. His sidestep and his spatial awareness were just fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Um, And watching him grow and blossom into such a potent player when you you kind of saw it before he did. Yeah. There's such a beauty to that. And then the the team success. And the, the other thing is team success is a magical, you know, being in coaching and you have a team that wins and you see the joy on not just the players but the staff and um, you just have little individual moments. So we played a game on the weekend and one of our players, he got himself into a real bind but and he was running randomly, what would seem randomly across the ground. Um, but everyone on the field knew what he was going to do from our team and just all the options opened up in front of him. And it was such a tick to a predictable game style. And it was like, they're the moments that you really love coaching. Seeing something in an athlete that they don't see and then helping them to realise it is really, really powerful. Really powerful. Because that just doesn't apply to, to sports, does it? It applies to all areas of life. I can imagine in your business, you know, you see some potential and, you know, you might employ someone straight out of university and you see them working along and, um you know, you see something in them where they have a slight change for their role or an area that they've shown some abilities that they didn't know they had and, you you know, you guide them towards that and then they start to fall in love with it because they're good at it and then their career kicks off and, you you know, that's, it's a, that's, that is coaching in a business world, isn't it? The most important responsibilities of a coach, are we saying it's really injecting belief into your players? Yeah, so I think, the, I mean, the key things are, Selling vision, so making sure everyone knows where you're going. 
um, setting sort of standards around what's the requirements of everyone so that there's a predictability and understanding of what is required here. So setting a strong culture. I mean, having a safe, both obviously physically, but an emotionally safe and and really strong workplace where people become better at their job, but better people um, through your workplace. I think that's important. Um, and then being able to, you know, I think it, as a manager, you quite often you're trying to get into the helicopter and look over everything and make sure everything's going well. But by the same token, each tree is a little bonsai that needs, you know, perfect care. So um, having the ability to look at the micro and the macro, I think is a is another aspect. There's nothing worse than the manager who won't get out of his ivory tower, um, except for perhaps the the uh, the manager who won't get out of the reeds. Shaping the future, though, Sam, as I think about what attributes do you look for in a young player? You know, when you think about developing people and bringing them on the journey with you, what are the specific things that you might look for, and what are some of the red flags? Yeah, it depends on you. It depends on your group. I think um, if you have a real I'm a big believer in behavioural psychology and um, how groups work together is dependent on, you know, you don't want too many alphas, but you don't want too many wallflowers. So you need to get your mix right. So it depends on your group. If you're looking for different types, then that that helps with your your filtering process of your, of your recruiting. And some of the things that I would look for is um, autonomy players who are willing to drive themselves and get the mm. best out of themselves without mm-hmm. too much help. Yep. Um, some sort of X factor. It's an unpopular story at schools when I go and speak to kids, but um, I would rather the kid that got an A plus and is number one in his class at maths who is nearly failing English than the guy who gets a B plus in both. Um, so in your sales team, your sales guys don't need to be masters at finance and your finance don't need to be masters at sales. I would rather have mm. the best in sales who had no idea how to count and the yeah. best in finance who had no idea how to sell. So looking for some sort of X factor. Um, and then, you know, you don't want anyone failing subjects in a, in a footy team or in a school. So you've got to help them with what their weaknesses are. But I would rather take really high-level strengths mm. Um, and try to harness the rest. Take high-level strengths. Well, you've got two different hemispheres of the brain working in that in that example, which they don't complement. So it, you're looking for a very specific, it may, not extreme, but uh, very specific A-grade capabilities, but they might be lacking in, in other areas, but you're looking for something very specific that's at a very high level. But they might, yeah, what if they do lack that self-motivation, Sam, where they're right. not coming to training, they're showing up without, you know, without their boots, they're just unorganised. They seem, like, how do you manage that? Well, it, it depends. I mean, if they're, it depends on their background. Um, so in, in our sport, you know, we'll have, we'll have some guys from different backgrounds who um, time isn't as important in different cultures. And so they don't have the same level of respect for time that... Mm. That perhaps you or I might, yeah. and so that doesn't make them um, disrespectful as people. What it makes them is culturally different, and so then you need to increase your cultural understanding. Gotcha. Um, whereas gotcha. if it's someone who just doesn't care and doesn't turn up because it is a lack of respect, that's a different thing. So there's a cultural understanding piece there. Yeah. Um, there's a contextual. You know, what is their background? What is their history? Um, you know, some some people's their parents took them to school late every day. So they've been late to school every day for 13 years of their life. And that that's not that child's fault. Now you need to educate them and upskill them. So I, I don't see those things as as red flags that can't be got can't be gotten past. But to have those things is obviously a, an added stress to your resource structure and um, it's going to take more care and more effort to get those things. But if they have other attributes that add to them as people, if they're good people, um, then that is always a, you know, a big part of it. I think having good cultural fits in your organisation is really important. It's quite difficult to um, change that side of things. And probably the only one that I have real trouble with from a red flag point of view is, is anyone who lies because it's very hard to improve somebody who doesn't tell the truth. If you're a terrible person but you tell the truth about it, we can improve that. If you're a terrible person and you lie about it, it gives you very limited scope um, to improve. Interesting. We'll often ask ask people, can you trust someone you don't like? And the overwhelming response to that is 
No, it doesn't make a lot really? of sense. Really, I would, they might be I would have certainly said yes. Why? Well, you might not like something. That doesn't mean they're not good at. That doesn't mean you don't respect them. I think in everything yeah. you do, there is a level of what makes you liked and what makes you respected. And certainly, you know, you want you want both. Um, but in a football context, if you only get one, I know which one I'm taking, and hence my my uh, respect. Yeah. My yeah. uh, my reputation out there maybe <laughs> demanding respect. I can't yeah. stand that guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hard on the sleeve. I like it. That uh, I think it's a lack of. It's not necessarily. I don't trust. Well, the response is that's hundreds and thousands of business people we've asked that question to. But it, uh, my um, my question about my question about the question is what makes you like or not like somebody. So. In high school, you know, there's 30 kids in your class. There's 10 of them that you love, 10 of them that you don't like at all, and 10 that you sit on the fence. Mm. Of the 10 that you don't like, there'll be a couple of them that are trustworthy. There would be. There would be. Yeah, so definitely. Is that not a question? Is that no, not de- well, that's, uh, no, that's a fair, fair assessment. I think it's, a, it's not necessarily you don't trust them. It's, a, it's, a, it's an unwillingness to want to trust them. You know, so we talk yeah, about the difference well, between an unwillingness to want to trust somebody yeah. and not trusting them, which I think is at the core of why people say no. I, well, I don't trust people I don't like, um, which is interesting. But can you like someone you don't trust? Would be the flip side of that. And you're saying that that lying is a red, massive yeah, red have, flag. I have no more, trust. I have more trouble liking someone I don't trust than I do <laughs> someone I don't like personally. I don't know what if that's a yeah. That that's that's consistent, but that's um. That's interesting. The red flag for you is is the, is the lying, which is a lack of trust. You can't have an, a fertile ground that you mentioned earlier without trust. I think that's pretty uh, consistent across all environments, not just sport. And thinking about getting the right people into a business, getting right people into a team, do you get involved in the list managing and recruiting and how important is that to, to building a successful team? Yeah, I've just started getting into that recently and um, been working with Mark McKenzie and Rob McCartney on on our list management for the future and we've got a draft coming up and free agency and and trade period and all these things and I'm just really, um, I'm not sitting here thinking I'm an expert in these things at this point. I'm certainly learning a significant amount at the moment, which has been brilliant um, for me as an individual, but that is going to be, I mean, the first thing I said when you asked why we were good and the very first thing I said, I'm not sure if you recall, do you recall? Uh, They could all play is what I think you said. Yeah, we're good at we're good at footy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the recruiting is going to be very important. Well, you can have First. cultural fits as much as you like, but if there's not the, the required level of talent, it's going to be tough to go to the top end. When you look back to those golden years, Sam, having the natural footballers, how much do you attribute that success to the list manager in being able to build that list? Yeah, I think certainly the uh, list management side of things is absolutely um, key. And when you when you win when you win big you'd be amazed at how many people um, are involved and how many people you look you think back and think if that didn't happen would we have won and whether that's a recruiting decision a mindset decision a um, selection decision just so many people the board um, the CEO you know the footy manager the assistant coaches you know there's just so many things that go into it and then I'm torn. When I think of these stories um, about all the things that went right, but I also am torn because there's quite a few things that went wrong. <laughs> I think back about some of the times um, and some of the mistakes that we made and think we won the grand final. We were the best team that year and gee, we did some silly things. Mm. And so you don't have to get everything right. Yeah. Um, but what you do need is everyone trying to do everything right. And that seems to be mm. Mm. Um, what is the key? Now, people will make mistakes. I made hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of poor decisions on the field as a player. If I was looking at umpires' decisions, which I have no control over instead of my own, um, then I would um, be far worse off. And if you have a whole organisation that is looking at the problems of others, Mm. then it's very difficult to try to improve. You have to be looking at what you can do better and then how you can help someone else do better as well, which goes back to our feedback loop we talked about earlier. That's the blame, the blame culture, isn't it? I have heard players say that, you know, in certain games when they see the opposition pointing and talking negatively to other players that they knew they had them. Yeah, depends. I've also seen some of the best players I've seen 
um, giving some of the greatest and almighty sprays to their teammates. Um, I've been involved in quite a few of those, and they're the teams yeah. that are very, very hard to beat. Uh, yeah. so you can draw Tough. a bit like statistics. You can, I think if you find the people yelling at each other, more often than not, they're the more successful teams. That would be my guess, but okay. because if I asked you the nastiest thing you've ever said to somebody, my guess is it's somebody that you love, a family member, because you have an unconditional love and you have psychological safety. And regardless of how nasty that is, you know that there's love anyway. Um, so when I ask this, quite often it's, oh, yeah, my older brother said this to me once or I said this to my little sister once. And how are you? Yeah, we're best mates. And that's in strong organisations. Sometimes you do say some nasty things in the heat of moment, um, but you have an unconditional love. That means that you are on the right track and you are heading in the same direction regardless of the words said. That's a masterful question, Sam. It's very revealing and it tells you a lot about the person. So that's a great question. We, we um, I sort of linked it. It's not particularly psychologically safe. A safer way to ask yep. it would be what's the nasty, who is the person who said the nastiest ever thing to you? Because that would make that's a better uh, That's a great question. Masterful questions at the core of what we do at Boom. Uh, is obviously influencing leadership, but the quality, high quality questions. Well, I give you, um, I give you license to use that question on your way forward. What's the worst thing somebody's ever said to you? That's um, that's a great question. Yeah, but you can't ask it in isolation. You need to have the follow up. If my bet is it's someone you are were very close or are very close. Right, you've got to frame it. Okay, gotcha. How or it's an ex-wife or something like that that you've broken up and then that. Please don't tell. Don't get them to tell you the story back. That's a disaster waiting to happen. <laughs> I think that's probably high on the list too. The ex ex wife or spouse. <laughs> That'd be very high on the on the list. I think. Do you use how important are questions in as a coach, Sam? Like really great questions. Do you think deeply about them, and how do you use questions to influence and engage? Uh, I use I use questions a lot. I don't I don't often premeditate. I've realised actually the more I've done public speaking and the more I talk to the players as a head coach, the more I realise I, I rely heavily on body language mm. and I try to pick up whether I think they're, they're reading the cues of what I'm saying, if they're engaged. If I sense a little bit of a lack of engagement, that's when I start to shoot a question, I start to change the tone of the conversation, start to use some energy or morale changes. As a, as a yeah. coach, sometimes we think that we can work everything out on, on paper mm. um, and we can draw on a whiteboard and you've got to do this and you have to do that. Um, the question I would ask the most often to a player, I think, would be, what are you thinking here? Mm. What's in your mind here? What are you considering? Um, because then he's relaying that to you. It puts you in his mind. It helps you actually coach what I would call a coachable moment or an implementable um, skill rather than we can try to – the perfect plan poorly executed will get beaten by a, an average plan perfectly executed every time. So you're always trying to give them something that they can achieve as a player. Um, so understanding what they think at any given moment is is really important. So you know, there's always – there's always these great challenges. I sit in coaches' meetings regularly um, and I often think that a great quote, I don't remember who said it, but um, it's it's better. Someone said it off the cuff and I've been using it for a long time now, but it's much better to actuate a new thinking rather than think your way to new action. Um, and so what I mean by that, we can sit in here and discuss. So let's say we were trying to sell a pen we're trying to sell a pen. They always use pens, don't they? If we were trying to sell a pen and we say, oh, if we say it like this and if we say it like that, then people will think this or people will think that. Whereas I would argue, just call 10 people and try to sell them a pen and yeah. then work yeah. out what worked and what didn't and go from there. <laughs> so it's better to actuate yeah. a new thinking rather yeah. than think your way to new action. Yeah, gotcha. And the facts or, facts or story, isn't it? Yeah. You know, stick, use the facts, use data. But yeah, you, so seeking first to understand is a big, big boom philosophy. So using better questions, one you know, trying to influence behavior. Only effective people, isn't it? Seek first to understand, then to be understood. I read that many years ago. Uh, the book you one mentioned. One of them that. is seek first to understand and then to be understood. But oh, that's a biblical uh, quote. I think there's a very similar biblical quote. 
that's similar, similar yeah. to that. But um, that's I'm not my. Well, I'm pretty well versed on. The, I had quite a religious background, so I'm not sure about that. But no, okay, I'm all happy right. To be Look, I'm going to go and do some research on that. Sam, I'm going to get you to can, the facts. You can send me a text with what you oh, think. All right, done. I'll do that. I do actually. I, while we're on the biblical, I have a, um, I have a controversial in the realm of religion, and that is, they always say that the, the sacred commandment. You know what it is. Treat other people the way that you want to be treated. Yes, yes, that's. And I will, I will argue that isn't particularly accurate. Okay, I think you should treat other people the way they want to be treated. Yeah, there you go. There's a nice spin so, on that. And so my spin on that is: so me as a player or a coach, as far as feedback went, I preferred to be punched in the face. If you were being gentle and nice to me, it used to it annoys me so bad. If you're going to say to me that I played terribly, just tell me that I played terribly. Don't say, oh, look, Sam, if I'm already getting annoyed at myself talking like that. Um, but if I coached other people the way I like to be coached, I wouldn't have too many followers, I don't think. Yes, yeah, yeah. So you always need to keep an eye on, you know, I guess you're in... in Increase your level of empathy rather than treating people the way that you want to be treated all the time. People skill, Sam, isn't it? You know, the power of process and having process and tools and being able to analyse, that's important. But the people skill seems to come through with, with all great coaches. The common theme about what made them a great coach is the people skills. The, adept, the ability to adapt, understand, listen, connect with different types of people. The punching in the face, though, that's interesting, Sam. Where, where does that come from? Um, I think I'm quite a... I'm quite impatient and quite urgent. So, yeah, um, you know, slow talkers and people who are, you know, slow to get around to their points. They're not, I have, you know, my patience level, I do work on it, but it's not my natural way. Like, get it out. Just yep. tell me. I don't, and I'm okay. But that's uh, the four, four communication styles at work. Think a director, socialize, a relator. So, for me, that's director, get to the point, yep. get to the outcome. Yeah, so, um, very important. I hope I've kept it on point today, Sam. We, we're managing to tick through here. I must admit, a couple of your little rambles in between, I've just been like, if I'm going to give him feedback at the end, I think a couple of his questions could be a bit quicker. Oh, I'll get on. <laughs> Brilliant, director. All right, I'll, I'll edit that out, actually. I'll get rid of that. I'll edit those, <laughs> I'll edit those questions up too, so they're really punchy. Uh, that's good feedback, Sam, actually. You punched me right in the face there with that one. So think oh, about... Was this, because of the conversation we've had about psychological safety and feedback i assume now that we are in a reasonably psychological safe environment we are in nutritious fertile ground now what is culture really sam a lot of people talk about culture it links to leadership um this person's not the cultural fit uh you know what is it i mean it, de it depends on your leadership i guess um but culture really is this is what we do here you know and what what's acceptable Good habits, bad habits, good things that happen, you know, whether meetings start at 9 or 9.03, whether people help each other do their work, whether people avoid. There's a, there's a great book called Black Box Thinking, um, and it talks about, it talks about um, the airlines and the aviation industry and how their lack, of, their lack of errors. And every time there's a mistake or a potential mistake, they report it to a governing body that is central that's not aligned to a company. And that means they're safe. They can't be sued as an individual. And that then gets filtered out to every airline so that the same mistakes aren't made. And I think we're all the better for that. And But yet in the medical industry, if you're a surgeon and you make a mistake, then you're personally liable for that. Mm. And so every hospital does surgeries differently which in my head seems so ludicrous, but the, the culture of the medical industry, and it's not, I'm not pointing the finger at doctors by any stretch, but the, mm. the way that their culture has developed is they don't help each other. They don't look for the best. They don't try to support each other. They just try to be the best themselves and try to be you know, innovative themselves rather than what I would love to my organizations to be is much closer aligned with an aviation model where everyone is helping everyone to be, or, so we can all be the best that we can. Mm, yeah. And that's an example of where cultures can, over many, many, many years, the differences between the medical industry and the aviation industry now are so significant. And that's a really good example, Sam. A very good book too. The, that's a sort of a compliance culture, which you see a lot in business. 
you know, the ticking boxes, the transactional nature and the way they go about what they do day to day. Um, yeah, and that, to me, that's that lead, that's from, I'm coming back to it again, but it's a lack of psychological safety. It's mm. a lack of trust that he thinks I'm doing a good job. And so to prove it, I need to tick all these boxes to show him I've done a good job. Whereas if you have a trusting, and it's not easy, I'm not sitting here saying this is what everyone should do because it's not practical. But if you have all the good people and they all, you trust that they're all trying to do the best they can with their job, then there's much less box ticking and much more valuable, viable work being done. Sam, how do you motivate and measure success when your team's not winning? Well, I would argue that it's actually more difficult (laughs) when your team is winning. I quite often call it the the balance wave. Um, so it's never as good or as bad as it seems. So particularly in my industry, um, when you lose, you're the worst team that ever played. And when you win, you're the best team that ever played. I remember I said to uh, to Jai Newcomb, um, he got drafted. He played his first game. For those who are not Hawthorne fans, he's got drafted in the mid-year draft and came straight into the team. And he played his first game and he had 14 tackles and everyone was raving about how strong mm-hmm. his game was and how good he's going to be. And um, I remember having a word with him, just saying, just remember it's not as good as it seems. Mm-hmm. At some stage, it won't be as bad as it seems, but you've just got drafted, you've played your first game, but it's not as good as it seems. You have to keep your feet on the ground, do the hard work, stay between the lines. And sure enough, another two games later, he, he gets dropped. And when he gets dropped, he's really upset. And I said, it's not as bad as it seems. Just head down, thumb up, stay between the lines. It's not as bad as it seems. You thought you were on top of the world and you were never going to play reserves again. Now you're out of the team and you think you're never going to play seniors again. And to his credit, he didn't need a lot of my um, inspirational talk. He, he's got his head screwed on well, but it's a great example yeah. of, of how you can measure success. So whether he wins or whether he wins or loses as an individual, whether we win or lose as a team, you're really looking at the bigger picture as much as you can. So where are we trying to go? What strides are we taking? How are we doing things that are successful for the brand we want to be? Um, and how are we doing things that aren't aren't something to be proud of that we need to try to improve? And if you're continually looking at the vision and the long term, um, then that's how you get where you need to go. For a lot of people at the moment, Sam, you know, COVID has been really challenging. The last 18 months has been really challenging. How, how do we apply some of these things in life? It's funny the way you even phrase that is uh, I've got a different sort of mental model. I don't really think of this as work or life. I kind of think of them as the same thing. So, um, you know, whether it's my wife or my children or my friends, you're kind of using always the same thing. How can you help people do their own jobs? Now, there's different Mm. cultural paradigms. You're not feedback about people's language and how they speak in front of a group to your friends because your models are different and what you're trying to achieve in your friendships are different. But Really, the level of support, psychological safety, it looks different in every environment, but everywhere you want to be, you need to have that. You know, your children need to be able to make mistakes. Your, you need to be able to mistakes. You know, my, I cooked dinner the other night, which is not something I would regularly do, and I, I didn't, I forgot to cook the taco things, and my, my wife said to the kids, why didn't you help him? And it was such a warm and it was telling me that I was an idiot and I had no idea what I was doing, but in such a warm, loving way yeah, that it, yeah. you create all this environment um, in everything you do. I think, I think the way that question is worded, that how do you bring it to, to your normal everyday life is a really difficult thing. If you're one way at work and one way at home, it makes it really hard. Mm, mm. Um, I am a terrible actor. Um, what you see is is what you get. Um, and if you're going to be a strong leader, you must be authentic. You have to do it your own way. And so I can be really warm and fuzzy um, on here. And after an hour of being warm and fuzzy and cuddly and gentle and nice, I would be so tired, so tired, because that's not really... Um, Exhausted. <laughs> in, my, in my wheelhouse, you know, I'm much more yeah. comfortable being the way I've been where... Yeah. I'm going to say some things you like. I'll probably say some things you don't, um, and that's okay. And then that's and then I'm comfortable with that, which is a around being able to stay present and be who you are and be comfortable in your own skin and and being able to to bring who you are at work and at mm. home, and they should all be the same. So quite often we talk. Everyone talks about um, 
work-life balance, but I would prefer to think of it as work-life synergy, how you can bring work home, how you can bring work, bring your, you know, I regularly take my kids to footy training and some people would say, well, that's not high-performance culture. Um, that's not high performance, but to me, bringing your family to your workplace is a is a valuable way to build relationships and people to know you for who you really are, rather than who you're trying to be in your workplace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. spot on. You've learned a lot. You've had a lot of different experiences. You've had success. You've had a lot of learnings. What's your biggest leadership learning over the journey so far? I think everyone's different that treat other people the way they want to be treated. I think yeah. having empathy yeah. and understanding for people's situations and not everyone is the same as you. In fact, no one is the same as you. So having a different way to lead different people, to have an understanding of your people and then try to lead them rather than getting them to understand you. Um, you know, no one, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care if you mm. like, is you have to get to know yeah, your people. Yeah. You have to know them. Um, I'm big on lean management processing and they would call it go to the Gemba, um, meaning go and see your people on the ground. You know, you might be running a big multi-billion dollar organization, but someone's making parts in the factory floor. Yeah. And if you go and see them and you go and see their issues, see what they're working with, try and make their life easier, then you have a much more well-rounded view of the way to lead an organization. And, um, certainly for me and going to the Gemba will be very important in my, in my future. Yeah. And I think that's walking the talk as well as any, as a, yeah, being able to understand all aspects of the business, the great best business leaders will all do that. And there's a reason, Sam, because they're passionate. They're bloody passionate about what they do. For me, this isn't work. Like boom's not work. Well, it's play. The, I know this is a podcast, so people can't see you, but just so you know, for those who are, who are listening, we're actually recording this on a Zoom and I can see him and he's strutting around and walking and carrying on like a pork chop. So there's certainly oh, a fair well, bit. Of- I am very excited. Uh, I've got the brand on as well today. So, hey, Sam, I really, really have, uh, I know you've got a lot on your plate, so um, can't thank you enough for coming on today and sharing some of your insights. I know that the audience will take a lot of value out of it. Um, I certainly have. So I just wanted to thank you. Been very enjoyable. I've enjoyed the chat and I... Uh, we didn't get into learning styles, but I'm a, an A learning style. So oral, so talking and listening, and that's my learning style. So I've actually learned quite a bit from having this conversation. So thank you for having me on. My pleasure, Sam. And um, yeah, and our best of luck for the next stage in your journey as well, sir. Um, and of course, go Hawks. Go Hawks. Trent is the Managing Director of Boom Sales, Australia's number one sales training and development company. If you'd like to accelerate your sales growth and profitability, go to boomsales.com.au.